Well, we have been spending our time singing about the Lord Jesus Christ, but the question that I have this morning is I wonder how much we know about Him or how accurately we know the truth about Jesus Christ. We all know that there are a lot of different statements that are made in the landscape of our lives, and we just need to ask the question, if someone came to you and asked you to describe for them Jesus Christ, would you be able to? If someone was to say to you that, well, I believe that, of course, there was a historic Jesus Christ, but he was just a good man, just a good teacher, do you find yourself equipped and ready to describe and discuss with that person the truth of Jesus Christ and who you know him to be? Seems to me as we continue on in our study that one of the critical discussions that we must have is who is Christ? And so I've been given the incredible tasks this morning at first of presenting one sermon on Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ. And I was thinking to myself, if John the disciple said that if all the things that were true of Christ were recorded in, a, in books, all the books of the world would not be able to contain them, how in the world am I supposed to do in one sermon what can't possibly be done? So I need you to know that uh, we're going to do two sermons on Jesus Christ, which isn't a whole lot better, but it's, uh, it's a little bit more. And today we're going to talk about the, um, the truth of Christ, uh, the truth of who He is, and we're going to narrow it down to the person of Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the work of Christ, because you'll be saying this morning, there's a lot about Jesus Christ that He didn't cover this morning. There's a lot that I know about what He's done for my life, who He is, and, and we didn't talk about that. Well... Hopefully, we'll talk about that next week, but for, for this week, we want to talk about who is Christ. Now, uh, you would think that we um, here at Calvary would have a pretty good understanding of who the Lord is, and it, so as you know, we've done our doctrine survey throughout the congregation, and uh, one of the, uh, the questions that was asked uh, was with regard to Christ and His, his eternality or uh, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, and you were invited to agree or disagree with that or say, I'm not sure. And uh, interestingly or distressingly or whatever, we're not in agreement on this question. You realize that in all of these questions, we should have had 100% agreement, right? You understand that that's how the test works. So survey-wise, uh, from what I see here, one-third of us agree. Uh, uh, disagree or, or agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So we have some work to do this morning based on our survey, and that's what we're going to do. So let's uh, pause for prayer, shall we? Father, as we um, spend some time in this lofty subject of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, uh, to say I feel inadequate to represent the Lord is an understatement, but Father, thankfully, you've given us your word, and I just pray that you would uh, help me to, to stay with what you have revealed to us through your scriptures, and that from that, that our hearts will be um, uh, reorientated if we need to be in terms of the truth, Lord, I pray that we might know our Savior, we might know our Lord, that if someone uh, grabs us in the street and says, tell me about this Jesus Christ, that that we in fact know you and know who you are. To know Christ and then to make him known is uh, the vision of our church. So I pray, O oh Father, that we might know Christ 
And uh, we have some work to do this morning. And I pray that you would guide us into truth. Your word is truth. And that uh, we would uh, have submissive hearts to the truth. And that where we have um, erred or where we have picked up some ideas that are not biblical, that we would discard those and uh, move on our way in truth. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The simple reality is that many of us in, in uh, evangelicalism today are getting our doctrine, getting our teaching, not from the Bible, but from other people, from books allegedly written about the Bible, or about experiences that others are sharing with us. But really, we must center our understanding of truth in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. It's critical for us. Um, I have witnessed over the, the 25 years that I've been in ministry a drift in evangelicalism toward uh, the unthinkable, toward liberalism, toward loosening our passion and our commitment and our convictions on the truth. And it's going at rapid pace in ways that I, I would have never imagined. Let me just uh, help you to understand that that to be an evangelical, which is to, meet, to, to be literally uh, um, what we would call a, a conservative Christian, uh, one of the high values of conservative Christianity is that we place a high value on the authority of God's Word. That, that's absolutely non-negotiable. You can't call yourself an evangelical if you question or have, have issues whereby you are drifting away from the Scriptures and drifting toward ideas and experiences and other literature. This is the center of our faith, where we draw our faith and the truth of our faith. And to drift away it, it explains why we are, we are not discerning uh, about what is true and what is not true. Um, shocking to me is, is the, the huge popularity of, uh, of the book called The Shack for instance, which is now being made into a feature-length movie. Um, I would encourage all of you if, uh, well, for, I'll make a statement, then I'll make a, a counter-statement. If you, if you are going to read that book, uh, read it with discernment. It's filled with untruths, and it has, it has reached the 10 million seller list. It, one million is considered in unbelievably popular. Ten million is considered mind-boggling. And fundamentally, most of those ten million are people who call themselves evangelicals or Christians, reading the book uh, allegedly about God that's completely filled with untruths about God. And so I would uh, encourage you not to go to the movie. I would encourage you to take the movie that you would actually use or cost you, and give it to Matthew Jones for the coldest night of the year, so we can put it towards, where are you, Matthew? Uh, there you are, buddy. Get it to Matthew Jones so we can actually give it to homeless people so it would actually go to some benefit as opposed to something heretical. So um, there's my uh, pitch for um, that. But let, let, let me say to you something. C.S. Lewis... C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity, and he held nothing back in terms of his forceful approach to the issue of who is Jesus Christ. 
He writes this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, I entirely agree with him. Let's note that the matter of the truth of who Christ was was settled early in the journey of Christianity. In the Nicene Creed, in 325 AD, this is what your brothers and sisters were believing about Christ. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. It's very, very distressing uh, that we have drifted away from the pure definition, pure biblical definition of who Christ is. Uh, would you agree with me that Jesus Christ is the most significant person and event in all of human history? There, without question that Jesus Christ is the game changer of life, the game changer in our world. It matters that those of us who claim to love him and serve him and consider him Lord of our lives know who he is and are passionate about who he is. And so this morning, I want to take you on a really fast-paced journey. I, I must say to you, it's going to feel like I'm asking you to sit in front of a fire hydrant with your, your mouth wide open because I'm just going to pour it into you this morning, but uh, in, the, in the bit of time we have, how could anyone describe Jesus Christ in 40 minutes? Uh, but I'm going to try to do the best I can and talk to you about the person of Christ. And, and, and let me just say to you that, that one of the most compelling arguments for who Jesus Christ is, is the matter of predictive prophecy. I want to share basically two major ideas with you this morning. The one is this, that Jesus Christ is fully man and Jesus Christ is fully God. I'm going to talk a little bit more than that, but if you leave here today firmly convinced in your heart that that's who Jesus Christ is, then we've got a great start into the person of who Christ is. And so those are the two things, but for me, the, one of the very strongest um, uh, apologetics or arguments for the proof of Jesus Christ is predictive prophecy. And, and uh, I would invite you to turn back to the very front of your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you something there, but I want to say at, at the outset that um, as of January the 20th, 2015, the latest update in scholarship, there are exactly 353 prophecies 
of Jesus Christ that found their fulfillment in the New Testament scriptures. Now, I know we here at Calvary, and perhaps uh, uh, I de I'm describing you by saying we become somewhat ho-hum about these things. Yes, of course, we know that there's prophecies about Christ and all of that. But I need to tell you that, that we, we need to have a fresh understanding of what this really means. We're talking about historic writings, thousands of years before Jesus Christ came on the human scene, that are predicting precisely who he was and who he is. This is an amazing thing. It's amazing that we can go back to the book of Genesis and work our way through the whole of the scriptures and have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that were precisely fulfilled thousands of years later in this one person. There's no, there's no human explanation for this. The only explanation for this is that of divine origin, of divine truth, of a divine person. And so as your Bibles are open here, I want to point out that Jesus Christ is prophecy fulfilled, number one. He is God's plan to address the fall of man, and it becomes very obvious early in God's Word. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, this is just following uh, the uh, situation where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they've fallen into sin. And now we come to the judgment of God, and we find ourselves in Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, who Satan used to bring temptation and the fall of man, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I want to stop here for a moment. Do you realize, and this is most stunning, do you realize that in the Garden of Eden, the virgin birth of Messiah was prophesied? That, that's stunning to me. That, that ought to be stunning to you. Look, at, I want to uh, unpackage this for you. It's a remarkable truth. God's promise since Eden was the evangel evangelical work of Jesus Christ. We, we call this the Protevangelium, the first gospel. But here's the critical thing here. In verse 15, God is saying by judgment, and I will put enmity between you, in other words, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring. In other words, I will put enmity between Satan and humanity, between you and the woman, and between your offspring, and literally it says here, the seed of woman. Singular. Now, it's stunning in a variety of ways, but first of all, you never describe the progeny of humans from the seed of woman. They are always described from the seed of man. This is a stunning description at the very front of our Bible that there is something going to be unique about what God is going to do to rescue humanity. The seed of woman. This is a prediction of the virgin conception of Messiah. Not only that, but this Messiah will crush your head, will crush the head of Satan, and when the head gets crushed, the body dies, it all dies. But he, Satan, will bruise the heel of Messiah. You have, you have not only 
Calvary predicted here. You have Christmas prophesied here. In this one verse, Genesis 3.15, Christmas, the virgin birth of Messiah, and Calvary, the, the, the victory over Satan, prophesied 4,000 or 5,000 years before Jesus Christ even came on the scene in this earth. That's stunning. There's 352 more of those. So you can understand why we don't have time to sort of settle down in just prophecy. But I have to tell you one more before we move into our, our next section. If you turn back to Luke, uh, turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 4, I want to show you what Jesus said because we have to ask the question, who did Jesus think he was? And I don't mean that in a saucy way. I certainly wouldn't go in front of Jesus and say, who do you think you are? That's what a lot of people are doing though. That's what a whole lot of people are doing. No, I, I, want, I want to ask the question in a respectful way. Who did Jesus think he was? Because that's a pretty important question to have answered, don't you think? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, it says, verse 15, um, he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And He went to Nazareth, which was his hometown, uh, where he had had been brought up and he decided to go to church one day which it says as was his custom I like to underline that's underlined in my Bible Jesus if he were here today in person would show up at church every Sunday because that's who he was and so that's what it says here as was his custom he stood up and uh, up to read and they handed him and I want you to get the drama of this they handed him a scroll and it was the scroll of Isaiah and it says he stood up and read and he unrolled the scroll to the place until he found Isaiah 61 and he began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says dramatically, he rolled up the scroll. And all the eyes of the people were fixed on him, waiting to hear what would be the next words out of his mouth. And he looked at them and he said, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Now, those who were at the synagogue that morning, they knew full well about the Isaiah 61 text. Isaiah 61 is an amazing messianic text, as is most of Isaiah. The promise of, my, of Messiah. Jesus Christ is standing there before this group in his hometown where he grew up. And he's saying to them, today... You are witnessing the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah, the one who would come and, and heal the brokenhearted, the one who would come and rescue the addicted, the one who would come and preach joy to those who were poor of heart and spirit. Now, this text in Isaiah 61 is, is, is filled with so much more because it goes on to say... Uh, I presume he may have read further than Luke even suggests here because if he had have kept reading, 
he would have said things like this, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. At the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has said as he, with broken hearted, heartedness looked at the people of God in their sorry state. He looked at them and he said, instead of having strong oaks uh, of, of character and strength, your oak leaves are fading. And by the time you get to 61, it says here the Messiah is going to cause there to be, instead of oak leaves that are fading, oaks of righteousness with strength and vigor, not only is Messiah going to deliver, but Messiah is going to breathe life of transformation into those that were fading and those that were, were going into, uh, into oblivion. And you have this amazing promise of Messiah from Jesus' own mouth. Jesus Christ is the talk of the scriptures. From the very front of your Bible to the very back of your Bible, it's about Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Christ. In the book of Luke, if you're still there and you go back to the very back of, of, of the, of the uh, gospel, uh, it's the weekend of Calvary. It's the weekend of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And Jesus was walking outside of Jerusalem and he happened to bump into a couple of guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus. You know the story. And, uh, and Jesus... Uh, comes up and he hears them talking about all the events that had taken place and how they were astonished that this man was crucified. And, and then when his, his followers ran to the tomb, they discovered that he wasn't there. And, and they're so astonished by all of that. And verse 24, we pick it up and they say, but him they did not see. And so Jesus sashays up to them and makes a little bit of small talk with them and says, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe. Jesus kind of was direct. He says to them to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And listen, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, it says, Of him, Jesus Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ is the talk of the scriptures. When someone asks you, Who is Jesus? Jesus is found throughout all of the pages of the Bible. Everywhere you look, you find Jesus. Brian Chappelle, in his excellent book, Christ-Centered Preaching, writes this. Every text is predictive of the work of Christ, preparatory of the work of Christ, reflective of the work of Christ, and or resultant of the work of Christ. It is Jesus Christ. He is the central focus. Now, as we move through, let me just say this, that thirdly, Jesus Christ is fully man. 
Let's understand this and how important this is to us. In Matthew, I'll bounce back again to the very front of, or sorry, Luke, in the very front of Luke. Uh, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary, a, a woman who is yet unmarried, and he makes this declaration to her in verse 31, you will be with child and give birth to a son. A human woman is going to give birth to a child, a human child, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Joshua, Yahweh saves, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus Christ was born to a virgin. It is declared here, a very human baby. This was a miraculous conception, not an immaculate one, as some of our other friends in other circles say. Mary, both Mary and Mary's mother were sinful people. Mary herself in, her, in the song that she sang in Luke 1.47, she herself says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. A sinless person doesn't need a Savior. Mary declares herself as in need of a Savior. This was no immaculate, no immaculate conception. It was a miraculous conception. And Mary was not one who was perpetual, uh, perpetually a virgin. In, in Matthew 13, 50 through 53 through 57, there it describes Jesus and his brothers and his sisters in his family to Mary. We learn how human Jesus was. In Luke 2, 40, he grew as babies do. He continued to grow. In 2:52, he was wearied. In John 4, 6, he was hungry. In John 17, 28, he was thirsty. In John eleven thirty five, 35, he cried. Jesus is described very much in his humanity, in his walk here on earth. As he one day walked in front of John the Baptist, who was baptizing, who, by the way, was his cousin and knew of the theology of Jesus, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold, God's Lamb. Now, to us, that would seem like a strange phrase. Well, maybe not to us because we know our theology, but to the world of people you work with or live beside or our family and don't know about the Lord Jesus Christ, when you'd said Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, they'd be, what are you talking about? But to the ancient Near East people, they understood about the sacrifice and they would realize that in the declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God or God's Lamb, he was pointing at him and saying, this is the promised Messiah who would come and give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one who would be God's sacrifice. He was the substitute man who came to live a sinless life and died for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. He had to do this in his humanity. Very much man. Now some are asking the question, therefore, since we looked at Luke chapter 1 or we could have looked at Matthew chapter 1 and the birth of Christ, many are saying, well, wait a second then, did Jesus begin at Christmas? Because that's what so many people think. That's why they don't view him as truly God. They think he came into existence, that Jesus didn't exist before, but he came into existence when this birth to a, a virgin occurred, and, and he was therefore created by God. Well, look, look in your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 1. You need to see something here. Very important. In answering the question, did Jesus begin at Christmas? John chapter 1. It's the next book after Luke. 
love the sound of turning Bible pages. It's a, it's a preacher's best sound. Other than, yes, pastor, whatever you want. That's, the, that's the, really the best sound. No, the sound of turning pages or, or me seeing you poke at electronic devices, providing you aren't texting someone in here. Here's what it says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the Word? That's a critical question. Well, if you look down a few verses to verse 14, the question is answered. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Well, that can be none other than Jesus Christ. The description here, the definition here tells us who, who the first birth verse is referring to. So in other words, the Word was God. And by the way, in the beginning is a reference generally to the beginning of the universe. But here's what it literally says. In the beginning, in other words, in the beginning of the universe, the Word was continuing to exist. The Word was. It wasn't a new beginning at the beginning of the, or, uh, of the, uh, um, uh, of, of the universe. The Word existed prior to the creation of the universe, was continuing to exist from eternity past. And Jesus, the Word, became flesh. The invisible God became visible for us, the Messiah. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten who is at the Father's side has made him known. I use the word begotten because I think that confuses us. It's an old word. We don't use it very much. And I think some of you think that Jesus is birthed by God because of this word begotten. But this word begotten doesn't mean that God birthed Jesus, the Son of God. What it means is it, it's a Greek word is a Greek combination of two words, monogenes. It means the one and only, mono meaning one, uh, genes meaning unique or, or one of a type or one of a kind. It, it's uh, the only example in, in, uh, uh, in its category. Um, that's what, so the many translations have said, but God, the one and only, has at, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus Christ, who continued to exist from beginning, from eternity past, entered onto the uh, history of mankind, made his place as he took on flesh and lived among us. This is who he is, but not created. Who did his disciples think he was? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, Jesus took his disciples to a very, very strategic place uh, called Caesarea Philippi. And there, there uh, at that place, uh, it was this center focus of pagan worship in the day of Christ. It still exists today in, in, in its geographic location, and in in, it hasn't been covered up or, or, or um, grown over by uh, development of houses or anything like that. It still sits there in, in its 2,000-year-old uh, glory, frankly. But here on this site, 
Jesus takes his disciples in this most amazing day and he takes them to this place and it's a, it's a gigantic rock cliff. Many of you have been there with me. I've been there several times. It's a, it's a giant rock outcropping and, and uh, there's a big hole in the, in the rock outcropping which is a big cave and out of that cave all you can see is darkness that goes into there and there's water that, that comes out from the cave and, and in this particular site which was a center of pagan worship at the time of Christ, those who didn't believe in God, those who were following other gods, Gods, in particular the god Pan, had created idols and there's carvings still in the stones that you can see there. And Jesus takes his disciples there and he says to the guys, who, who, do, who do you say I am? Who do people say I am, first of all? They say, well, you know, some saying you're John the Baptist or you're, you're uh, Elijah or, or you're, you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he looks at them and he says, but, but who do you say I am? And Peter stands forth and looks Jesus in the eye and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God, not like these dead gods that are worshipped here. You are that one in this most powerful moment. And Jesus looks at him and says, you didn't learn this from man. You got this from the Father. And then he says to him, because this hole in the rock had been called, had been known as the gates of hell. And he looks at them and he, and he says to them, on this rock, on this place, from this very place, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a powerful moment that, that dramatized the truth that, and, and the truth of the matter is this very day, that prophecy is continuing to be fulfilled as churches all over the world are being built and strengthened and growing because Jesus Christ made that promise on that day as Messiah. He was able to declare who he is and, and the disciples uh, strongly uh, declared him as Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God because there was this ongoing expectation that Messiah would come and, and rescue them and liberate them. And then Jesus called himself the Son of Man, Matthew 26, 63 through 68, although I could do about 84 verses, because 84 times in the New Testament, Jesus declared himself Son of Man. Why did he pick that? That was his favorite title for himself. There's a lot of reasons. I can't get into all of them today because we don't have time, but suffice it to say that in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, there's a, a, a glimpse of heaven there, and it describes one like the Son of Man standing with the ancient of days and one who would come to earth. And Jesus described himself, identified himself as the son of man, which is a really powerful description of the heavenly origin of God, of Christ, the earthly mission and the future glorious coming. Jesus is the son of man, but fourthly, Jesus Christ is fully God. There's no end of people who are quite happy out there to leave Jesus as fully man. In fact, that's what our, where our world wants to leave him. They want to leave him at, he's a moral teacher, he's a good teacher. Jesus was an important historic figure. Uh, Jesus, yes, we, you know, we have to give, you know, we have to give due deference to history. Obviously, he was, he was a, a man of history. But they don't want to go any further with it. But I can tell you that Jesus Christ is fully God and as God's people, 
we need to be fully conversant of what this means and how to defend this truth and, and how to, how to uh, describe this truth. And, and I'm going to have to pick and choose and select here because our time is winding down, but, but let me just say to you that, that Jesus is described the Son of God, described as the Son of God in the New Testament. At his baptism, the Father in heaven spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he said, listen to him. At that moment, God the Father authorized the person of Christ as heir to all the Father is and all the Father has. That was a remarkable moment and authorized the words of Jesus to be granted equal authority to the Father. This is a powerful moment to those who believe in God but ignore Jesus. God the Father authorized Jesus as co-heir of all he is and all he has. One of the, uh, uh, the likelihood in your life is that sometime you've had some visitor at your door who uh, does not want to grant to Jesus the description of divine or of God. I never mind those moments when I have visitors at my door who come asking me about the truth of the divinity of Christ. And I'd like to give you just a little help on what you might want to do in the future if someone shows up. The book of Revelation is a tremendous help um, in that it describes, as, it describes Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the all in all, the everything. Now, why do I point to this text in terms of Christ being fully God? It's pretty important. And by the way, you can even use the Bible they will bring, which isn't really the Bible at all, and it will show the very same thing because the book that they use called the New World Translation is, uh, is a, a piece of work that is tampered with by humans but not tampered with very well. And so you can turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, and there's a description here whereby God, God, very God, is declaring himself as the Alpha and Omega. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Say, okay, great. Yeah, we believe that. That's true. And I say, well, what about Jesus? You believe he's God? Well, no, no, Jesus isn't God. Jesus might be a God or sort of a semi-lower level. No, no, no. Is Jesus Christ Jehovah God, the one who names himself here as Jehovah God. Well, no, no. Well, then let's turn back to the back of Revelation. Go back to Revelation chapter 22. In verse 7, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Who are we talking about here? And as we move our way through... Uh, it says, worship God, and then verse 12, it said, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And the person that's being referred to says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, who is he talking about here? Well, it says, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through its gates. You, hear what, you see what's happening here? Remember what we heard last week? The gate... The way to the tree of life was shut down by the sinfulness of man. Now the way is being opened. Who opens this way? Into the gates of the city. And it says outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, the everyone who loves them, practices falsehood. And here it is. I, Jesus, 
have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. It's about me, Jesus. I'm the Alpha and Omega. So we start out describing who it is and, and the description is the Lord God and and then you, it, it clarifies here at the end, he's referring to Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. He is to be worshipped. In Hebrews 1, 6, 8 and following, it declares there that he is more than an angel. In fact, uh, God in his word says, let all God's angels worship him, meaning Jesus. By the way, if Jesus Christ was just a human, God's word would have never invited us to worship him, would never have invited angels to worship him. I can assure you that the God in heaven is not describing or is not instructing anyone to come and worship any of us. He's not instructing uh, the beings in heaven, any angels in heaven to come and worship any humans. The only instruction to worship is God himself. And he's saying here that God, that Christ is to be worshipped by the angels of God. It says in, the, in verse 8, your throne, O God, will last forever. He is not only to be worshipped, but he is the forever king. The child is born, called Emmanuel, God with us. Of his reign, it will be forever. The government will be on his shoulders, we are told in prophecy. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he existed in the form of God, declared all, declared uh, to be all that God is. He is the forever king. John, the disciple, hung around with Jesus a whole lot. Was on the inner circle. John said this in John 1, 3. Without him, meaning Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus Christ is the creator. That, that's stunning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians. That's probably be the last place we turn for this morning. And I, I just want to show you a couple of things in Colossians, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For, and this is reference to Christ, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians, Paul tells us that that God who created is none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, Christ himself. The, the Son of God is the creator. Tells the Colossians this. John tells any who will listen. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us there that man was made from dust that he, Christ himself, had made. Not the end result of any evolutionary process. He was made from the dust that Jesus Christ had made. And we learn that women were made out of the side of man. It's already a creative upgrade. You don't, you don't ever hear us going around saying men are beautiful. At least you should, and that's just wrong. That's just, that's just plain wrong. I mean, when you, you guys, when you look in the mirror in the morning and you're looking back at yourself, you're thinking, how could any woman ever marry me? Like, thank you, Jesus, because, you know, quite, quite honestly, we just aren't beautiful. 
but women are. And this is God's work. So you, you have no sense there of, of uh, and women should, women should of all creatures be the most insulted by any evolutionary theory. Because you were made from a human, by God, by Christ, by the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal I am. Uh, one day the Jews, in John chapter 8, 57 to 58, one, one day a group of Jews showed up and they said to Jesus this, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Can you imagine? Can you imagine someone walking up to you, at, 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 like, let's, Christ aside here for a second, just walking up to you in church and saying, hey, uh, aren't you a, a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Like, could there be some, like, small talk before we get to that? I mean, could, could you, how, how was your day? And all and They just walk up to Jesus and say that to him. And Jesus, his answer is, no. <laughs> I, I like that. It's just like, no. And, and he sort of sidesteps their question, although he, he answered it, no. And it, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And they said, aha, we know you're demon-possessed. Because Abraham died. And what this means, if you're saying that those who keep your word will not die and Abraham died, then you're saying Abraham didn't keep your word, his, God's word and, and you're just being blasphemous. And Jesus, knowing their mind, because you never want to play mind games with Jesus because he wins every time, he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Wow. Like that was, a, that was an earth-shattering statement because Jesus was describing himself with that most holy description of the great I am, the great Jehovah Yahweh God. That's why they wanted to pick up stone, stones and kill him. He is the head of the church, Colossians 8, 1, 18. You see what it says there? And he is the head of the body, the church. Who's the boss around here? Who's the boss of this organization? Who's, the, who's in charge of the church? Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. And then um, we learn in the Bible that he demonstrated the three big O's, omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. His omnipresence, he has promised each one of us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with us wherever we go. His omniscience, when he met that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said, listen, um, you have five, you've had five husbands and the one that you're currently living with is not your husband. She said, how could you know that? How could, how could he know everything about me unless he's God? Only God could know these things. And then he de demonstrated his omnipotence when those men came and they brought that paralytic and they ripped open the roof in Mark chapter 2 and they lowered the man down and put him in front of Jesus in the midst of that crowd. There was this squabble going on about who Jesus was and who he thought he was and all of this. And there was this argument that went on that it, only God can forgive sins. It was at that point that Jesus looked at the man on the mat and said, your sins are forgiven. Stand up. Jesus demonstrated not only in declaration but in action that he alone is God. God alone can forgive sins and Jesus is the forgiver of sins. Finally, when Jesus had risen from the grave, 
and was presenting himself to his disciples. Thomas, one of the disciples who had so much struggle with his doubts in his, in his faith, Jesus looked at him with great compassion, said, Thomas, reach out your hands to my hand. Reach out your hand to my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas looked back at Jesus in that moment and said to him, my Lord and my God. And so we finalize our attention on this morning and realize that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We call this in theology the hypostatic union. It's impossible for our minds to comprehend. All we can do is describe it. And all we, and, and the value of being able to describe it is that what we benefit from. We realize that the eternal Son of God, fully God, became fully man and joined himself to human nature forever, says Wayne Grudem in his theology on this text. Have we comprehended that the God of glory who existed in all eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loved us so much that he came to earth and leaving glory took upon himself human flesh and human nature for the rest of eternity. So when you say, I don't know if God understands my hurts. I don't know if God understands the force of temptation I'm facing. I don't, know if you under, I don't know if God understands the pain that I'm going through. I don't know if God understands what it's like to lose someone who I love so much. I'm telling you that, that God loved us so much that he condescended, took on flesh, and experienced every one of those things so that he does know. And he invites us to bring our burdens and our cares and our addictions and our pain and our sorrow and our persecution to him and says to us, cast your care on me as I care for you. He invites us to allow him to be our Lord and Savior, to come into our life and change us, to take us from a wilted, fading life to become a strong, transformed, confident follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. The only question that's really left this morning is, have you ever responded to the invitation to come to this Jesus, God, who forgives sins, and brings you into relationship with God the Father for all eternity, have you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, your truth, that dispels the lies and the chatter and the distractions and all the folklore and brings us to a laser presentation of the truth as laid out in scriptures of who Christ is. And I pray, O oh God, this morning with, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit here among us and the promised presence of Jesus, therefore, 
and the power of your word that you would bring to our hearts a willingness to receive the truth. That those of us who may have been doubting or allowing our faith to drift or our theology to drift towards liberal thinking might be drawn back to the center of what's true. Re-establish our convictions and our confidence in Jesus. There might be some here, Lord, who've never ever responded to an invitation to have you as Lord and Savior. Forgive them of their sins, Lord. I pray that today that transaction would take place between you and a heart that's formerly lost that could belong to you today in Jesus' name. I pray, amen. The very end of the statement that C.S. Lewis made with respect to Jesus, he said this, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth to the glory of God the Father. What do you need this morning, my beloved? You will find it in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads? Uh, it's possible this morning that one of you or several of you have never responded to the invitation to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would hate to let us leave this, this morning without giving an opportunity for you to, to make a transaction with the living God, Jesus Christ, who wants to be your Lord and Savior. If anyone here would say, Pastor, I... I've never made that decision, but this morning, would you pray for me? Because I, I want to have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And be there, just slip up your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything, but I will pray for you. Anybody here this morning says, you know what? I never heard that about Christ. I never really understood that about Christ. But today, I want to invite Christ to be my Savior and my Lord. Anybody? Anywhere? Thank you, yes. Anybody else? Our Father and our God, you understand and know our hearts, and you're the one who draws hearts to yourself. We thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he does and what he can do in a life. We are testimony to transformed lives by Jesus Christ, and we thank you and we praise you, and I pray, O oh God, that we might know our Christ and make him known. For Jesus' sake, I pray, amen.